You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. So if you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word. We're going to read again uh, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, the Beatitudes. We're going to be reflecting on the Beatitudes, diving deep into the Beatitudes uh, in the weeks to come, for the weeks to come throughout the summer. And so uh, by, the, by, by week 9, you'll probably have the Beatitudes memorized, right? So I will read the, the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, Matthew chapter 5, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against, your, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You may be seated. So I think over 20 years ago, I read a book uh, written by Ravi Zacharias titled Deliver Us from Evil. And uh, it, it was a book that God really used to affect me in a pretty uh, powerful way. And in the book, and I'm going to just share his version or his retelling of the story of the picture of Dorian Gray. I don't know if you've ever heard of that story before, or if, you, if you've seen it on, on, I think there were two versions of it in the movies, and a very old version of it and a, and a version of it that came out in 2009. But I want to share his version of the story for reasons that will become obvious later in my sermon. But he, he shares a story of Dorian Gray, and, and in, in the story, this story. It's a very interesting story. Dorian, uh, oh, and by the way, the story was written by Oscar Wilde, who, if, if you know anything about his life, he was not known for being the stellar moral person, uh, of, of, a moral person of character. He was pretty uh, licentious in his pursuits. But he wrote this story, and the story is of Dorian Gray, and, and he was a very handsome man, very attractive man, this artist by the name of Basil uh, Holloward, I believe was his name, seen uh, uh, Dorian and said, you know, I, I want to capture your image on, uh, on this canvas. I want to I capture your portrait because of just how attractive Dorian Gray was. And so Dorian Gray, he, he, he obliged. He said, sure, you could, you could do this. So they, the artist paints this portrait of Dorian, and uh, it's an exact representation of Dorian's person. 
And Dorian thought to himself, if I could just live any way that I want or wanted without anybody knowing about it, and the only repercussions being that the image of this portrait is the only thing that would be marred, then that would be really fantastic. I would really like to do that. And so Dorian's wish was granted that he could live however he wanted, and the only evidence of his licentious and, and, and wicked lifestyle would be reflected on the portrait, not on his actual person. And so he did that. He engaged in sensuality. He engaged even in murder. And as he continued, the image of the portrait became, grew uglier and uglier. He hid the portrait so nobody else could see it, at, at risk of, of people discovering his, 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 the true nature of his soul and his heart. But the artist who painted it discovered it, and he understood what it meant when he saw this ugly portrait that used to be so beautiful. He said to Dorian in this kind of confrontation, he said, does it not say somewhere, come now, let us reason together, Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. And instead of heeding the artist's counsel, Dorian grabbed the knife and he killed the artist with it to silence the voice of reason. The story reaches an emotional complex, uh, climax when no longer able to stand um, the indictment of the picture, Dorian reached out for the knife once more to destroy the portrait, to remove the only visible reminder of his wicked life. And in stabbing the portrait, Dorian sent, actually killed himself. He was found dead. Uh, the people in the house could hear the scream of death. And when they, dis when they walked into the room, they discovered that the portrait looked just like Dorian, in, his, in all his glory, but the actual person of Dorian was marred beyond recognition. Ravi Zacharias asks the question after he shares the story, and I'm going to read his, the question that he asked. Can an individual or society live with complete disregard for a moral and spiritual center and not suffer from the wounds of wickedness? Can the soul of a people who have lived without restraint be left unravaged? Is there a point at which one must cry uh, a halt to the passions and the whims of unbridled appetite and admit that enough is enough? What's really haunting about Ravi Zacharias' book, Delivers from Evil, and, and, and the opening introduction of that book where he shares the story of Dorian Gray is that in 19, on May 19, 2020, Ravi Zacharias died. He died of an aggressive form of cancer. It was bone cancer. He was diagnosed with the cancer two months before his death. Now, Zacharias had had a profound influence on my life. He was a, an apologist. Uh, a renowned apologist, respected by the evangelical church all over the world. And about 
I don't know, six or seven months later, it was discovered that Ravi Zacharias was living a secret life. He had spoken to thousands of people all over the world. He had shared the gospel with, with countless thousands. And, and beyond anybody's notice, he was responsible for the sexual exploitation and abuse of numerous women in his, wife, and in his life for his own gratification. And instead of heeding the warning of Dorian Gray's character that Zacharias told in his book, Deliver Us From Evil, he pursued a similar path while disguising or, or while covering up you know, this, this ugly part of his soul with an attractive veneer that fooled the evangelical world, including myself. In fact, when they had the memorial service, it was made available to anybody who wanted to watch it via live stream. I was at the gym working out while I was listening to it, and I, I had to leave the gym because I was so emotional over Zacharias's death. I've, I have, I don't know, five or six books on my shelf in my office written by Ravi Zacharias. And there are moments where I wonder if I should just throw them away. If there was no voice worth listening to in those books because of his this lifestyle that he covered up. In the early 1900s, the London Times sent an inquiry to famous authors with the question, what's wrong with the world today? One of the respondents was the renowned Christian English writer, philosopher, and literary and art critic by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He submitted his answer, and it was in the form of only one sentence. Dear sir, the problem with the world is me. When Jesus opened up his sermon on the mount, the greatest sermon ever preached, he started with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was last week's sermon, where the, 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 the poor in spirit are those who, who understand intellectually that uh, there is nothing that we can bring to God's table of righteousness apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that there is no righteousness in of ourselves that we can bring to him so that he would be obligated to forgive us of our sins and let us into his heaven. That there is no person in God's kingdom, there is no Christian who has been forgiven of their sins who is not first poor in spirit. That was last week's sermon. And this, the, the, the second beatitude is the emotional side of, uh, uh, of our understanding of this righteousness that we need, this righteousness that we, can, that we cannot produce in of ourselves, and that is those who mourn. But what kind of mourning is, is Jesus talking about here? Because if you remember last week, I said that each word... <laughs> Uh, each beatitude begins with a, the word blessed. 
Uh, it's, the, the Greek word can mean happy. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It, it sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? How can you be happy and mourn at the same time? I mean, think about it. It's like saying, wealthy are the poor, or clean are the dirty, <laughs> right? Happy are those who mourn. The kind of mourning that Jesus is speaking of here is the kind of mourning that has to happen, it has to happen before you understand that the only righteousness that you, that you need, the only righteousness that is available to you is the righteousness of Jesus Christ that will cover all your sins. It is a mourning over your sin. That's what he's talking about here. It is a coming to terms with the reality that we are sinners. And it's not just that I'm a sinner, it's that we live in a world of sinners. And the reason why things happen like a young man at the age of 18 finds his way into a school building, locks himself into a classroom, and announces to, 19, or to those students that are there that you know, they're all going to die. The reason why those things happen is because we are cursed. We are under a curse. What happened on Tuesday is mankind at his worst. Now, my guess is that all of you in this room are not going to go out and murder children. But we're capable of it. You know, I mentioned a while back that we live in a society, in a world that does not honor life. Millions and millions of children are murdered every year before they're even born. And we have politicians right now, wax and eloquent, if we just got rid of the guns, if we just changed this law, if we just did that, if we could just do this to, exchange, to, to, to affect the external, then maybe the heart will change. And in God's economy, the only way people will change is if their heart changes first. And the only way that's going to happen is if they're affected by the gospel. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall the one who mourns over their sin. Because only after you discover just how horrible your sin is, it is then that you're able to seek the righteousness of God that is available to you through Jesus Christ. Those who mourn are those who not only know that they are unrighteous, they feel that they are unrighteous. It's not just a mourning over their own sin, it's a mourning that takes place over the sins of others. 
It's not a, oh, they're, they're bad kind of a morning. It is, how can we be so lost? <laughs> how, is this, how does this happen? When will God remove the curse of sin? When will he, when will he uh, uh, address on a, on a global scale the, 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 the fallenness of mankind? When will he reverse the curse of sin so that there's no more goodbyes in the human vocabulary? When, when is he going to do that? When will God make all things new so that there's no longer no more death, no more weeping, and no more sighing? Apart from a deep sorrow over the sins that grieve the heart of a holy God, there cannot be genuine readiness to receive the forgiveness of one sin that is available through Jesus Christ. Those who mourn are like those who grieve over the evilness of sin. They, 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 they do not celebrate it. This is why this, the Sermon on the Mount is so timely for every generation. We live in a day and age where sin is celebrated, not just in the world, but also in the church. Where we treat God as like a, as an all shucks kind of a God, like where we sin and we're like we, our posture towards God is so God's okay with my sin. His response to my sin is all shucks. It's okay, and, and, and we we don't understand and appreciate the reality that our sin is what it is. It's evil and it grieves the heart of a holy God. It's the kind of grieving that that um, we read about all throughout the Bible. It's the kind of grieving that the Apostle Paul experienced over his own sin after he became a Christian. The words will be on the screen. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing that I hate. Now, Now if I do not... Or if I, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he says later on, he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the kind of grieving that Jesus is talking about here. I don't know about you, but I've asked myself thousands of times, why did I do that? Have you? Like, why, and why do I keep doing that? Why do I do the thing that I know that I shouldn't be doing? What's really amazing about Romans chapter 7 is that Paul's not talking about his past life. He's talking about his present circumstances. He is aware of his sin in a whole new way than, than he previously was before he became a Christian. Painfully aware of it. My mentor, some of you met him, Ed Hardesty, said one day, I actually had him lead a young adults retreat. I used to... Uh, put together a young adults retreat every year. 
and have a guest speaker come out and we'd just spend a weekend together. And, and I asked Ed, Ed, could you, could you just take us through First John just for the whole weekend? Just for you, could you do that? And he said, absolutely. And he used a, uh, shared a metaphor, a description, a, a, just a picture that stuck with me. He said, you know, after you become a Christian, the closer you walk with Jesus, the more of your own sin you will see. And he used the illustration of a, of a, of a lamp. He said, you know, in a, in a dark room, you turn a lamp on, it's going to light up the room. In a room where the sun is shining through the windows, you turn that lamp on, you'll see the light bulb that it's on, but it's it's not, it's not going to be as bright as it was if the, if the outside is completely dark. If you take that light bulb and you take it outside and you hold it as it's on and you hold it in front of the sun, it's going to look pretty dark. He said, the closer you walk to Jesus, the more of your sin you'll see. It's not, that, it's not because you're sinning more. It's just that you become more and more aware of just how far short you fall from God's holy standard and just how much you need the righteousness of Jesus that's already been provided for you. And Paul is experiencing that. And he says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of death? Well, his answer is Jesus Christ. Like, like I, he was saying here, I am painfully aware that I am a sinner and that I have this propensity to sin. And one day, Jesus Christ is going to resolve that. But right now, it's a fight, <laughs> It's a waltz. It's two steps, forward, two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes two steps back, one step forward when it comes to my sin. And then he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, just a, a, a few verses later, it's my favorite verse, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and so what Paul's saying there is that, is that in light of what Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, the mourning never goes away. We are always, even after coming to faith in Christ, painfully aware of our own sin. Isaiah, the prophet, gives us an example of, of, uh, of what mourning over our sin looks like. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and with two they covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And, And this was Isaiah's response. He wasn't, Hey, I'm running up to you, God. I want to give you a hug and sit in your lap. That was not his response. His response was, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's the kind of mourning Jesus is talking about that is required for entrance into his kingdom. It's the kind of mourning that Job experienced after a long season of suffering. He encountered the holiness of God. And the words again will be on the screen. This is his response. He said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's speaking of God. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? 
Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, for which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's the kind of mourning Jesus is speaking of here in the Beatitudes. It's not just mourning over what's happening in our world. It's mourning over the, rea- the, the reality that we, are, that, th- that we have a heart problem. That mankind, you and myself, that we are responsible for most of the world's suffering. And the, the mourning that Jesus speaks of, this grieving that Jesus speaks of, is a grieving that the world does not know or understand. That's why you have politicians saying, oh, we know how to fix it. <laughs> we know how to fix our society. We know how to make it ha- so that th- these kinds of shootings don't happen again. Let's throw a law at them. And Paul, Paul even said in Romans chapter 7, all the law does, the law of God does, is it shows just how far short we fall that we need somebody to, to, to do something with our heart problem, something that we can't fix on our own. Only God can fix our, pro, our heart problem. That's my, my next point. Only God can fix it. One person said this, the world tries to change a man from the outside in, but Jesus changes a man from the, out, from the inside out. In God's economy, change must happen first inward before you can see it outward. I heard a, I, there was a person um, at my previous church, and I've heard this more than once, re- relating to the Christian life. She said to me, you got to fake it till you make it. And I just thought, Oh, did I just hear you right? <laughs> she was referring to the Christian life. She said, you just got to fake it till you make it. Just, just focus on the outside and eventually it will take, take root in your heart. But in God's economy, uh, when it comes to, to, to the change that happens in a person that only the gospel can produce through the power of the Holy Spirit, it happens in the heart and it begins to reveal, the, the change begins to reveal itself in the outward appearance of a person. Like how you dress on Sunday, God doesn't care about. <laughs> what he cares about is what's going on on the inside. And he's the one that can only change what's happening on the inside. That's why I, I really don't believe that my role as your pastor is to be the Holy Spirit in your life. I will not try to guilt you into the kingdom. Like the Holy Spirit can do a better job at that than I can. My responsibility as your pastor is to open the book and let the Word of God be heard so that the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, can take His Word and generate life in you and in me because that's really where only lasting change happens. I, uh, when I became, you know, I'm coming up to the anniversary of the day where I placed my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And... Uh, I grew up Catholic. I said the Lord's Prayer almost every single night uh, from the point that I heard it 
all through my adolescence as a teenager. And you want to know something? It didn't change my heart. I thought by saying a prayer that if I, if I just so happened to die, that, that because I prayed every night, that would get me into heaven. What needed to happen is I needed to hear the gospel. And I heard it multiple times. But what needed to happen is for me to come to the realization that I was poor in spirit, that I had nothing righteous to offer to God. And then I had to come to the reality that my sin offended a holy God. And that, and that understanding had to grieve my heart before I could respond to the gospel. And as a result of me placing my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you want to know what happened? My life began to change. Now, it didn't change overnight. Like you, 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 I've shared my, my story of how I came to faith in Christ. And um, a lot of times when you hear a person share their story, including when I've shared my story, you don't hear the ugly part, uh, the, 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 the messy part of the years that come afterwards, right? Where God is just exposing your sin in your life, and you're like, no, I want to hold on to that sin. I want to keep doing it. And God's like, no, you need to, you need to let this go. And, and it's that messy part of, of our lives that uh, we rarely talk about. But it's the change that only the, the Holy Spirit can do in your life and in, in my life. Like, we need laws to suppress evil in our world. Even the Bible acknowledges that. The Bible says of government that it is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. We need good laws. Don't get me wrong. Uh, we cannot live in anarchy because then, I mean, that, that just removes the restraint of, of the evil intentions of, of human beings. But for evil human beings to change, Jesus has to change their heart. And God promised that he would do that. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, this is a promise that God had made generations before Jesus was even born. That, a promise that only Jesus could make a reality. Let's read this together. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Meaning I'm going to take this heart of stone from you and I'm going to give you a heart that can beat for me and can love me and can respond to, to, to my laws and respond to, to, to what I love and, and respond to what I hate. But the rest of the world, it doesn't know that kind of, under, it doesn't know that kind of grief over sin. It, it, it doesn't know that. And all of us at one point in our lives were there. All of us at one point in our lives looked at sin and said, looked at it as fun. <laughs> and the Bible explains why a world who does not know God seeks to change the outside with the hope of maybe changing the heart. It explains why the world does it. it because the world thinks that they have the ability to change the human condition. And it doesn't. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians that says, in their case... The God of this world, speaking of the devil, has blinded the minds of uh, unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You want to know why? Um, our president and, and Congress and others are having the conversations that they're having right now, thinking that if we just put some laws in place, if we just remove the guns, 
that that will keep people from murdering people? It's because of this. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That we are helpless apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that the world is oblivious to its real need, the real need that people have. And so the way the world functions is this. Well, if we can just be nicer to one another, that will make the world different. It will make the world a better place. Uh, we, we, but we can have our fill. We can, we, we can do whatever we think is good for us. I mean, that phrase, you've heard that phrase, you do you, right? Um, uh, it used to, <laughs> used to be the Burger King mantra, you know, you can have it your way when it comes to your life. And, and so if you feel inclined that you, can, that you were wired to live a certain way, then you should be able to do that as long as it makes you happy and it doesn't make others around you unhappy, or affect them in a, in a negative way, without any regard of what God thinks. Jesus said to that person, the person who, says, who looks at their life and they think, I have 70 years ahead of me, or however many years I had ahead of me, I can live my life till I'm old and gray, and I could play along the way. I, can, I could spend the first, I was, I was doing the, the, the math in my brain. I, um, I have like, let's see, um, like 15 years of higher education, you know, and, and then, then you put grade school on top of that. Uh, so, so a good chunk, a quarter of my life is, was de- designated towards education, and that's the way the world kind of sees education. So we just celebrated a graduation this weekend. My nephew graduated. And, and then and he's going to go to school of mines. And so we think, okay, you go to, you go to college, you, go to, you get a master's degree, you get a doctoral degree, and then you could work, work out, you know, work in the job that you want to work, make money, make sure you put money aside for retirement, and you work really, really hard. Maybe you'll get married, maybe you'll have some children along the way, maybe you'll get that house, maybe you'll get a car, but just work really hard so that when you get old enough, you can retire and play and die playing. And, and Jesus said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. He said that in Luke chapter 6. And, and to the one who mourns, to the one who recognizes their sin and sees, you know what, my, my life was made for something. I, I, like, uh, my life exists for a purpose, and it's not for the education, and it's not for the job, and it's not, it's not for retirement. My life exists for the glory of God and, and for His mission in this world. And, and, and it is my sin that kind of holds me back, and I grieve over that. And Jesus said, Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. That's why I joke. <laughs> um, I'm not saying retirement's bad. <laughs> Uh, I think retirement could be a really good thing. It could be a bridge for you to do mission really well instead of playing. And so uh, uh, he, Jesus is saying here, though, one day you'll laugh. And he's not talking about early retirement. You know what he's talking about? When all things are made new. When heaven is merged with earth and earth experiences a resurrection like the one that we will experience. When the curse of sin is lifted and removed and there was no more death or disease. You will one day laugh 
What happened when you arrived at the foot of the cross? You arrived at the foot of the cross with empty hands and a heavy heart. Empty hands, I had nothing to bring. And a heavy heart over the, the grief of my own sin that resulted in Jesus Christ needing to be crucified in my place if my, if my sins were ever to be forgiven. Which leads me to the third and final point, and this will be, this will be uh, brief, that the Christian is always aware of his or her heart problem that never goes away, brothers and sisters. Your spiritual heart problem, you'll always be aware of. The closer you walk with Jesus, the more aware of it you'll become. Because the closer you walk to Jesus, the more of God's heart will be reflected in your heart. Like the things that, that, the, the, the things that didn't grieve your heart will begin to grieve your heart because the things that grieve the Lord, that God's heart will start to grieve your heart the closer you walk, to him, walk with him. Uh, it reminds me of like this condition I live with. You know, my dad, you, most of you know, my dad died at the age of 47. I am 47. I'm going to be 48. Now, my dad died at the age of 47 of a heart attack. Uh, a couple months after that, I thought, because uh, we were newly married, my wife and I were newly married, and I thought I should get life insurance. I was rejected for life insurance three times in a row in my 20s. I thought, well, that's not normal. So I went to uh, schedule an appointment with my doctor. My doctor said, uh, your cholesterol is through the roof. You are predisposed to a heart, a heart attack. And, um, and so he put me on cholesterol medicine and put me on blood pressure medicine when in my 20s. And, uh, and I was overweight. And I, I decided at one point after Seth was born, I needed to get healthy. Uh, and the thing that I experienced in my 20s all the way up through uh, now are uh, my heart has a tendency to skip a beat. And uh, at first I thought, something's wrong with my heart. So when I, went, when I, I scheduled an appointment with a cardiologist, and he said, well, uh, your real concern should be your cholesterol <laughs> and managing that. And I've, you know, since then I've had more doctors look at my heart than most people. But one of the things that the doctor diagnosed me with that I still have today is benign heart palpitations, which is a reminder. Of, like they're not deadly, they're not terminal, they're just uncomfortable. And every time I have them, it reminds me of what my dad my dad died from. It reminds me that if I'm not careful, I better continue managing my cholesterol because I'm genetically predisposed to a heart attack. But the heart palpitations won't cause the heart attack. They just remind me that I could have a heart attack one day. Does that make sense? So the heart palpitations aren't dangerous. What's dangerous is what I put in my mouth. That's what's dangerous. What's dangerous is my diet. What's dangerous is if I stop exercising. But the heart palpitations remind me of the reality that I have a heart condition. I have a genetic, genetically, I'm genetically predisposed to a heart attack if I'm not careful. And after you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you want to know something? When you genuinely come to the foot of the cross as one who is poor in spirit and who, is, who's, uh, just, who mourns over their sin, you want to know what happens as a result of you placing your faith in Jesus, trust in Jesus Christ? You go from, your, your sin goes from a place of being terminal 
to not being terminal anymore because your righteousness is not your righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? But as you draw closer to Jesus Christ, you have a type of heart palpitation. It is the reminder that you are a sinner just like me and that, that you, are, you, you have this toxicity in your soul that is predisposed to some of the ugliest evil. And that, but the, the thing that is different now that, was, that, that you didn't experience before you came to faith and, Christ and Jesus, faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the thing that is different is that you, the, the, the sin that didn't bother you before bothers you today because the Holy Spirit reminds you of it. Of it. You, you, you've received a heart of flesh. God took that heart of stone out of you and gave you a heart of flesh, metaphorically. Now your heart beats for the God who, who made you for himself. And as your heart beats for him, you are constantly reminded of the sin that grieves his heart that we're predisposed to. It's a battle. It's a fight. It's a fight that you want to have because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's a fight you did not want to have before you came to faith in Christ. Does that make sense? And, and so this is the, the mourning that, that is true of every Christian that is a part of the kingdom of heaven, that is a citizen of God's kingdom. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this. Let's read this together. Therefore, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right? You're a new creation. If you're a Christian, you are a new creation. There is no condemnation for those of you who have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But you are painfully aware of your own sin in a way that you were not aware of before. I said at the beginning of the sermon series last week that the, that the Christian is, is, is aware of the presence of God 24-7. You are also aware of your propensity to sin. And it's a fight. And it will be a fight until the day you die. You will, you will never have complete victory over your own personal sin. But here's the difference. And I'm wrapping up here. Here's the difference that marks you Christian today as opposed to before you were Christian. The difference is, is that your sin grieves your heart now. And listen, this is where I want you to hear, listen closely. If your sin does not grieve your heart, you might not be a Christian. I'm not saying that you don't sin. I sin. Just ask my family. Like I can be an idiot. I woke up in a bad mood this morning. My shower got cold. I immediately went from, I love you, Jesus, to, ah. <laughs> Roy Moss said to me, you, you, you know, you're preaching today. You better get in a good mood. <laughs> <laughs> I am aware of my sin, and it grieves my heart. I am aware of what I'm capable of doing. It grieves my heart. But there's coming a day when Jesus will come, and he will remove the curse of sin. I will experience, as you will experience, a resurrection. I shared this in my e-letter this week. 
And the, the, what is promised in Isaiah chapter 51, verse 11, is your promise if you're a Christian. This is for you, brothers and sisters. Let's read it together. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Listen, this is the last thing I'm going to say, and then I'll dismiss you. There are no Dorian Grays in God's kingdom economy. There are no Dorian Grays in God's kingdom economy. He is not an all shucks kind of a God. You cannot with your brain think, okay, I believe the facts of the gospel and live your life contrary to what the gospel calls us to, contrary to the center that the gospel calls us to. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you're having an affair, if you're in this grievous, unrepentant sin, the Bible says if you continue down that road, you may not, you probably are not a Christian. If you're in trenched in unrepentant sin, today is the day you need to repent and turn from it and turn to Jesus. Do you understand? And that's what the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount calls us to. This is a description of what discipleship looks like. This is a description of what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And God's citizens mourn over their sin. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. That there is salvation found in no one else but the name of Jesus Christ. And I just implore you, before you leave here, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, that you would do so before you leave. And if you're trying to figure it out and you want to talk it out, I'm available. I would love to talk to you. I would love to, 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 to listen to you. Uh, we'll have... Um, 20 minutes before, <laughs> before the next service. I'm sorry, I kept it 10 minutes long. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for, for saving us. Thank you for putting your son on a cross in our place for our sins. He hung there, not for sins he committed, but for sins we committed. He bore your wrath and every last drop of it at our expense so that we would know your forgiveness, so that we would know your love, so that we would know what it is to be a son, to what it is to be a daughter of the God of all creation, fully pardoned and a member of not just your kingdom, but a member of the family. And we thank you for that. We thank you for that. And for those in this room or watching the live stream who do not yet know you, God, I just pray that they would consider seriously what was said today. And for those in this room who are living in just unrepentant sin, just the sin, they, don't, they just haven't really given a rip about what you thought or what you think, God, that they would repent before they leave here today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.